All right, now take your Bible and turn to uh, John uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 18. John 20, starting in verse 18. And let me read down to verse uh, 23. John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed uh, them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to come and to study your word and pray that you'd guide and direct us in our time together of this hour. And we pray that you would, um, again, help us to see clearly the person of Jesus Christ and the great peace uh, that he offers to the world and, and the great uh, commission that we have been given to take uh, that message of mercy to, to men all around us. Guide our time. Uh, open your word, I pray, uh, to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we return to our study here in the book of John this morning, uh, we're listening to the first words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead. Bible teachers uh, for a long time have pointed to the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus as he spoke when he was on the cross, and those words are often called by many the last seven words of Christ. But the truth is those are not the last words spoken by of the Lord Jesus here upon the earth, because if those words that Jesus spoke from the cross were the last words that he spoke here on the earth, then that would mean that there's no resurrection. And since that is incorrect, uh, what you have here in uh, the, John's gospel is actually a series of the last words spoken by Christ after the resurrection, which should probably uh, claim for us a greater amount of our attention than the words that he spoke uh, at his crucifixion. Now, normally we give great attention uh, to uh, the last words someone speaks just before they die because the last words that someone speaks before they step into eternity are the most important things on, on that person's heart. That's what's dominating their final thoughts. But here you have one who has defeated death, and that's historical reality. And therefore, his first words after his victory over sin and death, the last words that he will speak uh, before he ascends to the Father uh, especially are vital, I think, for us to hear and understand. Because here is what's dominating the heart and the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's most important to him uh, in his first interaction with his, with his disciples after he rose from the dead. So again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, absolutely critical to Christianity. And the first thing, or the first time he appears to his disciples after his resurrection, uh, obviously he comes to them and they're in fear and terror, right? They're in a hiding in a locked room uh, because they failed to believe what the Lord said would happen. Uh, on many occasions, he specifically told them that he was going to Jerusalem, uh, that he would be uh, greatly mistreated, that he would suffer and die, but then he would raise victoriously from the grave on the third day. But they didn't believe that. Therefore, because they didn't believe the word of God, they what? Struggled. 
Right? I've said that to us. When we don't believe the word of God, we struggle. That's it. Those are your two choices in life. You either believe what God says to be true or you struggle. They didn't believe, therefore they struggled. They didn't believe the word of the Lord, nor did they believe the firsthand eyewitness testimony from somebody they trusted that Jesus was actually alive. So then these disciples are trapped in fear, trapped in doubt. Uh, he appears to them, and then their fears are dis- their doubt is dispelled. And they're going to spend the rest of their life confidently proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. And they'll do that all the way to their martyrdom. And again, I told you the only explanation uh, for the, the radical transformation of these men from being locked in a room fearful to being bold proclaimers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's no other explanation. Uh, they're going to give their lives for that testimony. They'll spend the rest of their life, and they'll give their life for that testimony of the literal fact of the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, that fact changes everything in human history. The fact of Jesus Christ beating death is the most monumental event in all of human history. And since the world is governed by the prince of the power of the air, since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the one thing that you never hear in the culture is Jesus Christ defeated death, right? Because Satan doesn't want men to know that, right? God wants men to know that, but there's a spiritual battle behind the scene that's going on. Jesus Christ defeated death. He literally rose from the grave. It's irrefutable proof, irrefutably true. And there's irrefutable proof that his claims, therefore, because he defeated death, his claims to deity are absolutely true. It's also proof that the divine atonement was accomplished at the cross, that Christ, through his sacrifice, completely satisfied the just demands of God's pure and holy law, that nothing else needs to be done. Nothing else needs to be done to secure a right relationship with God because Christ has done it all. And that is important for us to get. That's vital for us to get. Because all false religions have the follower do something to try to attempt to appease a God. But you can't. They can't. Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished. Right? It's finished. He's done everything that needs to be done. And it's impossible to be saved apart from believing that fact. It's impossible to be saved apart from believing the fact of the overwhelming historical evidence of the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's only those who confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead who shall be saved. It's only those people. Now again, skeptics throughout history have uh, tried to deny the resurrection. They've tried to present doctrines of demons is really what they're doing. Doctrines of demons, as Paul calls it in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 in place of the truth. But as I've told you repeatedly, the issue of not believing in the person of Jesus Christ, the the issue of not believing in the literal historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is not due to a lack of evidence, but it's really evidence of a hard heart. It's evidence of someone who has a love for sin that demonstrates itself in unbelief. Because the truth is, if Jesus Christ has actually defeated sin and death, and he has, then that means the Bible is true, which it is. It also means that Jesus is God, The God of the Bible is God. Jesus Christ is God, and every man is accountable before God for their violation of uh, God's law and their sin against him. Therefore, if Jesus Christ literally defeated sin and death, and he has, that means that everyone's going to be held accountable for their lives. And sinful men and demons, again, in an irrational effort to evade guilt and the consequences of their sin and their accountability before God, have futilely attempted to deny or explain away the reality of the resurrection. And and I've told you, there's no hope. 
It's the most foolish thing that any person can do to deny the resurrection because there's no hope of defeating death unless Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. Again, every funeral I do, I point that out. Everybody's coming to an appointment that nobody wants to keep, and everybody in this room one day is going to be the guest of honor at a funeral you don't want to be at. And unless Jesus Christ defeated death, no man has hope of defeating death. And you can't deny the resurrection. It's historical truth. Jesus Christ defeated death. He's God come in the flesh, and all men are accountable to him. And all men will stand one day and give an account. All knees will bow before the person of Jesus Christ. Now, again, this morning we come to the text. Again, the men are hiding in fear. They've uh, uh, been greeted by Christ, who they did not believe would raise from the dead. But he's come and he's greeted them. And he doesn't greet them with chastisement. He doesn't uh, bring rebuke or, or blame because of their abandonment of him in his hour of need and because of their continued unbelief. But he comes and presents to them the message of peace. These are the first words. This is what's, this is what's near and dear to his heart uh, after his resurrection from the dead. Here are his first words, peace be with you. And in fact, it's only biblical Christianity that presents that to men. It's only biblical Christianity that presents peace to men. It's only biblical Christianity that offers to the world the message of peace. That peace is available between God and man through the precious blood atonement of the person of Jesus Christ. You will not find that in any other world religion. Islam certainly doesn't offer to the world peace. It offers to the world a sword. And the message of Islam that it presents to the world is not from above but from below. Roman Catholicism presents to the world a false hope, a false Christ, and a false gospel. And this apostate form of Christianity burned men at the stake in order to promote its own success. So both of these worldly religions do not offer to the world peace. Only biblical Christianity does. And at the birth of Christ, God sent an angel uh, to herald his arrival to declare to the shepherds who were again out in the field keeping their watch of their flock by night uh, the great good news of peace. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I be, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. We'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel, the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace is available to men through Christ. For those who repent and turn away and come to the Savior, asking for their forgiveness that's found in him. These are the men with whom God is well pleased on the earth. Now again, the last time we started in, uh, uh, just started into verse 21, so let me just kind of review quickly, uh, back up to verse 18 that I read at the top. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and he said these things to her. Now I told you the words I've seen the Lord, greatest good news that anybody uh, could ever hear. Uh, that Jesus is no longer dead, Jesus is alive. He's defeated sin, he's defeated death, he's defeated the devil, he's given his life as a ransom for many. He was delivered up because of our transgressions, he was raised for our justification. Therefore, listen, no matter what struggles you're presently going through in this fallen world, and there are many, no matter what difficulties you might be facing, we have confident hope because Jesus Christ is our ultimate victor. Whatever problems we have in life 
are not as big as the ultimate problem that we're all headed to, which is death. And the reality is Jesus Christ is victor over our greatest issue. He's come out of the tomb. It's tremendous, tremendous good news. I've seen the Lord. Verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, again, this is Sunday evening, resurrection day, when the doors were shut and the disciples were where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now I told you the idea behind the word shut, it means the door is locked. Now again, these men are fearful. They're going to be arrested. They're going to be the recipients of the same kind of ill treatment they saw that uh, Jesus uh, uh, received. So they are in fear, but nevertheless, they still gather together. And Christ will not be kept from joining his people in their hour of need. When the doors were shut, the disciples were, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now, I made much of that uh, statement last week. Uh, the words that Christ said first, peace be with you. Now, it's a common greeting. I, I get that. Uh, wishing well-being to another person. But in the context here, it has to be much more than that. It's much more also than just a greeting, and it's much more than words that are initially meant to come and reassure the terrified disciples because perhaps they thought they were seeing a ghost, is what Luke says. He suddenly appears in the room. No knock on the door. Nobody opens the door. The, the risen Lord Jesus Christ just immediately stands in their midst. And again, it's a message that reassures them, peace be with you. It's a message that reassures them of his continuing graciousness towards them, in spite of the fact that Peter denied him three times and all the rest of the men had forsaken him and fled when he was arrested, fearing for their own lives. But I think it's also a message that points to the reality that peace with God is foundational under, to our understanding of the mission uh, that Christ is going to call his followers to proclaim in the world. Peace with God is the foundational message for the mission that Christ is going to call his followers to proclaim to the world. Now, obviously, none of us in the room can serve God unless we're first reconciled with him through the peace that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has accomplished on the cross. All men have to be reconciled before they, uh, uh, before, uh, they are useful. And because all men have to be reconciled before they are useful, uh, without that reconciliation, without that submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, admitting the fact that you're a sinner, all men are still alienated, right? They're all alienated in their sin before God. But when a person places their faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ, they enter into a new relationship. Uh, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ alienated before, but now by faith justified, the ability to stand in God's presence completely forgiven, positively declared righteous. We have that reconciled relationship with God, and therefore we're called by Christ to represent him well in the world. Uh, again, we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. We're his ambassadors of the message of peace, the message of reconciliation to a hostile world that all men desperately need to hear. When the doors were shut... Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, again, I told you last time, uh, the aspects of that are, are at least twofold. We have peace with God, but we also have the peace of God. It's objective and subjective peace. And what most men in the world fail to understand is their desperate need of peace with God. 
because most men in the world are blindly indifferent to the person of God, blindly indifferent to his holiness. Therefore, most men fail to realize that God is angry with them because of their sin and their rebellion against him. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's wrath is his righteous, just anger against sin. It's his righteous, settled response against rebellion, which will bring punishment both temporal and eternal. And throughout history, we see that. We see God revealing or making known constantly his wrath. You either see it through natural uh, consequences of violating universal moral law, or you see it sometimes through God directly uh, uh, bringing his wrath, wrath through personal intervention. For example, the Old Testament's full of uh, judgment, right? Adam and Eve, they're judged and cast out of the garden. The worldwide uh, flood of Noah, fire and brimstone that level uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Babylonian captivity of the nation of Israel because of their sin, etc., and so forth. But the most and the greatest most graphic demonstration of the revelation of God's wrath against sin is when he poured out his wrath upon his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. The greatest and most graphic revelation of God's holy wrath, his hatred for sin, is when he poured out his divine wrath and judgment upon his sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. Listen, if God would judge him who knew no sin, his dearly beloved son, with such hostility, righteous anger, and without mercy, you need to make sure that you need, you need to realize that the guilty will not escape. If, if God judged Jesus Christ without mercy, then you who are truly guilty will not escape his just judgment. which will culminate itself in final eschatological and eternal wrath in a literal place called hell from which there's never any hope of escaping. Paul says in Romans 2 that God's kindness and patience will one day come to an end. For those who reject his mercy, Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Those who do not in obedience believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, those who reject him, he says himself, John 3 and 36, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 3, all men by nature are children of wrath. So by nature, all men are not at peace with God. God is not at peace with all men. Men are in rebellion. And according to the Bible, God is at war with men because of their hostility. And men desperately need to have a cessation of that hostility. They need to have that hostility ended because the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And God in his great kindness has indeed offered all men peace. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, speaking of what God has done through Christ, Paul says this, through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on the earth or in heaven, 
Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Peace be with you is the first post-resurrection words that Christ speaks because he wants men to know that peace is available, that the war, the hostility can be over. And for those who repent and place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, Romans 8 says there is now what? Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The hostility has ended. So Christ offers objective peace with God, the removal of condemnation, the removal of wrath, the ending of hostility, deliverance, being taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son and in the kingdom of light, taken from being aliens and strangers into the very presence of God into his family where we no longer stand before him as our judge, but we stand before him as our Father in heaven, his children. So that's objective peace. But peace with you is also subjective peace, inward peace that Christ brings to those who repent and believe upon him. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So this inward peace is the part of the abiding presence of the Lord who's promised to never leave us or forsake us. That allows us to live our life anxious for nothing because we have access into the person of God, the presence of God. Therefore, we have the ability to let our request be known to him and know that he hears us. Therefore, Paul says, the peace that we have with him surpasses all comprehension. And it should guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That inward subjective peace. And it's Christ that brings this peace. It's Christ that brings peace to the nations. It's Christ who brings peace with God. Again, objective peace, the ending of hostilities. And it's God that brings, uh, Christ that brings subjective peace, this peace of God, uh, this inward peace. He brings it to the, to the individuals. He brings it to the nations. And he brings it between peoples. Again, peace among the nations. Peace amongst individuals. Again, Paul spoke of how Christ resolved the, the conflict that was going on in the culture at the time, the divide between the Jews and the Greeks, which or the Jews and the Gentiles, which was great. Uh, he says in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who's made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's Jesus Christ, because he's the Prince of Peace. And of course, we know just by observation, there's no peace in this world. Certainly no peace going on in the Middle East at the moment. In reality, there's no peace anywhere, all around the world, in our big cities, Sadly, in our homes. No peace in our homes, no peace amongst families, husbands and wives, parents and children. There is no possibility of peace apart from the person who is the Prince of Peace. And all disharmony and, and all discord and all anger and all animosity and murder and violence among men will never end until people subject themselves, submit themselves, bow the knee to the person of Jesus Christ. If you want peace, it's found in Christ. Some of you have no peace. Some of you in this room, some of you have no peace. 
Because either you don't know the person of Jesus Christ or you are not obedient to his word and you live your life in abject chaos without peace, asking why is my life such a mess and it's because you either don't know the person of Jesus Christ or it's because you're not obedient to his word. That's it. He offers peace. He is the prince of peace. And the way that Jesus Christ accomplishes peace was through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And you see that in the text when he shows them his wounds. He wants to identify for them that he is exactly the one whom they had known, the one whom they'd seen crucified, the one who died a real death and now is alive by way of real resurrection. Verse 20. When he'd said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Now again, this not only identifies him, but these are really uh, trophies of his victorious fight. Uh, these, these wounds are a vital part of his resurrection glory, essential to his saving ministry. It's evidence of the fact that peace has been won. And God's reign of peace is forever established through the death, burial, resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. And it is this historical fact that really is at the center of our witness for the person of Christ. It is true that Christ can help people with their personal problems. It's true that Christ can help people with their personal struggles. But that's not the message that we're to deliver to the world. That's not the, the center of the message of the gospel. Paul put it like this. He put the message of the gospel in a very concise manner in 1 Corinthians 15.3. says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for your sins according to the scripture that he was buried that it was raised on the third day according to the scripture it's not your personal problems it's not your personal struggles that alienates you from god that brings his hostility it's your sin and the gospel is the good news that christ has died for our sins according to the scripture he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture and apart from the forgiveness of sin that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, then all men are still under condemnation, headed for eternal judgment. Sinners who understand they are sinners, desperately in need of God's mercy through Christ, will find that mercy provided for them. Sinners who understand that they're sinners, they're desperately in need of God's mercy through Christ, will find that mercy provided for them and their sin will be covered because Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death and has rose victoriously from the dead. However, sinners who reject God's offer of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ will bear for them in themselves the wrath of God and God's eternal punishment. And we have great confidence biblically to proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead, that he is the only savior of mankind. He is the only hope. He is the one who offers to men forgiveness of their sins, a reconciliation with God. He offers forgiveness of sin for those who want it. He offers reconciliation for those who want it, for those who will repent and place their faith in Christ. He offers, again, objective peace between God and man for those who desire it. The end of hostility. And no man will ever know inward subjective peace 
until he first has objective peace with the person of God, and it only comes through the person of Jesus Christ. God offers to you peace. But he will come, and he will judge the living and the dead and bring just condemnation upon those who fail to repent and believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ warned that repeatedly. Unless you believe that I am, not just a moral teacher, not just a good man, unless you believe that I am, that I am God come in the flesh, you will die in your sin. That's the word of Jesus Christ of history. And again, for those who received the offer of forgiveness and have accepted the peace that God provides men on his own terms uh, through the person of Jesus Christ alone, again, living in a fallen world, living amidst uh, many difficulties in life, uh, even upsetting uh, um, events in life like the, the loss of a job, the death of a, a loved one, a close friend or family member, the, the sting of failure. There are many things in life in a fallen world that cause us to be upset and agitated uh, in, in the events of our life. But Jesus Christ, again, to us who've repented, because that objective peace has been made, he offers subjective peace in the midst of those difficulties. Subjective peace in the midst of those who, in the midst of the trial for those who trust him. Peace in time. Real world peace. And again, the unbeliever doesn't know that. The unbeliever doesn't experience that. It's only those who repent and place their faith in Christ can have that subjective real world in time peace. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of, of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Again, verse 20, when he said these things, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I mean, great joy belongs to the one who has seen the risen Christ, either with their literal eyes as these men did or with the eyes of faith as we do through the word of God. There's great joy, amen, in knowing that your sin's forgiven. There's great joy in knowing that your sin's forgiven. Therefore, the Christian can rejoice even in the midst of the greatest of suffering. Now, in the context here, being convinced that it really is Jesus before them, they've seen him, they've touched him, felt him, they've even eaten broiled fish with him, it says over in the book of Luke, as conclusive proof that he's real, he has a real body, he's not just a spirit. He's now going to instruct them. He's going to commission them. He's going to give them great purpose and give them great power to carry out the mission that he has left them in the world to carry out. Verse 21. Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So again, having been the personal recipients of his peace, both subjective and objective, Christ is now going to commission these men to take his message to the world. They are his ambassadors speaking his message. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, people have asked me, what is this? Well, let me tell you, it's a preview of the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission comes later in Galilee. We're in Jerusalem, right? The, the Great Commission comes later in Galilee, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So this is a preview. And the Lord is commissioning these disciples, again, those who have seen the reality that he has defeated death, and again, those who have been the recipients of the peace that he offers, to go into the world with the great good news that God wants to offer men peace. 
God is willing to forgive your sin through the person of Jesus Christ. That is their great purpose in life, that message. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So again, why did the Father send the Son of the world? I mean, it's a vital question that has to be asked. Why did the Father send the Son into the world? He did not send, the Father did not send the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to improve people's economic condition. The Father did not send the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to overturn and correct all the injustices and problems uh, on a social level in this world. Father didn't send the Son into the world uh, to instruct men on morality. Father didn't send the Son into the world in order to make people's personal circumstances better. God the Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world for one purpose. Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. Luke 5.31, Jesus said, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why Jesus came, for no other reason. That's why he came. He came to provide salvation, to bring salvation. He came to provide the sacrifice that we need in his death, his death that alone could bring reconciliation between God and man. He's the only one who could do it. He's the only perfect God and sinless man together in one being. And only perfect God and sinless man could fulfill the role to be the perfect atoning sacrifice that men need for forgiveness of their sin. Because a mere man can't redeem another mere man, right? Because a man has his own sin to deal with. So if redemption is going to be accomplished, then God, and God satisfied, it's going to have, in his wrath appeased, it can only come from God himself interceding and carrying out the activity, carrying out the work. Only God can propitiate himself. Only God himself can turn away his personal righteous anger against our sin, and he's done that through the person of Jesus Christ. No one else like him who's ever existed in the world, the only begotten, the only monogamous, the only one of his genesis, right? The only one of his kind, the perfect God-man, that's Jesus Christ. And again, for reconciliation to take place between God and man, a perfect man has to represent mankind. And again, the only one that fulfills that role, that uh, title, that uh, job description, if you will, is the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners. He came to call men and women to repentance, to seek and save the lost, to call men and women to turn away from their rebellion against God, humble themselves, place their faith in Christ, in Christ alone, and be forgiven. And the Father says, out of my great love, I'm going to send my Son into this world to save sinners. And the Son says, out of my great love for the Father, out of my great love for rebellious sinners, I'm going to come. And now the Son says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, the idea of Christ being sent into the world is something that's repeated a number of times. It's emphasized a lot in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 17, 8, as you've sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. The Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to do his will. The Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to speak the Father's words. Uh, the, the Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to proclaim and perform the Father's works. And again, he sent... The Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to bring salvation to the world. 
John 3, 17, for God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Paul says it like this, 1 Timothy 1, 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. So Christ calls us to himself, and then the natural progression of Christ's saving work in a sinner's life, that atonement that has granted us peace, that peace that fills the heart of the Christian with supernatural joy, and again, out of a love, out of a love for the, the Savior, out of obedience to the Savior, filled with this great joy, peace having been accomplished already, we go uh, with great joy again into the world to bring this good news that Christ's peace is available for everyone who will repent. God's peace is available to everyone who will repent and place their faith in Christ. And again, I've said this a couple of times in the last few weeks. We have one simple message. One simple message. Here it is to the world. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. That's it. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ if you will repent, if you will turn away from your life of rebellion and sin and place your faith in him and him alone. Now, sometimes we get off track in this one simple message. And sometimes we forget that one simple message, or simple message. But we have one simple message to the world. That's it. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. That was the announcement that the angel made to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 concerning the child that his uh, betrothed wife Mary was to be when she conceived supernaturally in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 verse 21, she'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And Paul says those who have received that message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, therefore if any man is Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, right? Old things have passed away and new things have come. One simple message, God is willing to forgive your sin, he saves his people from their sins, and people who are saved from their sins are new creations in Christ. You need to stay, you need to stay on track and realize that if you're going to proclaim that one simple message to the world, that Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins, if you're going to proclaim that message that indeed men and women are reconciled, saved, forgiven, uh, new creations in Christ, again, uh, old things pass, new things have come, then guess what? you probably as the truth teller ought to look like you are a new creation in Christ. <laughs> you ought to look different, right? You better have a changed life. There ought to be a difference with Christ in you than when you were apart from Christ. And that evidence should be, uh, that reality should be evidence to everyone. That, that should be evidence to everyone. You need to look like someone who's been saved from their sins. If you want your gospel proclamation to have any kind of credibility, if you want your gospel proclamation to seem credible and be received, then everything in your life needs to be done in a manner that brings honor and glory to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm debating to stay on track or run a tangent, but I don't know. You know what? There's far too many people in this American culture that believe in God, but they've never been transformed. And when somebody tells me that they believe in Jesus, the next question that I should ask is tell me how that belief in Jesus has transformed and changed your life. 
Okay? For people who believe in Jesus, all they're really telling me, uh, all they're really telling me is they have nothing. I mean, I'm not saying that this is where they're at, but they're not telling me anything more than they have demonic faith because the devil believes in Jesus. And far too many professed Christians who've grown up in this Christianized culture have been inoculated to the transforming, redeeming power of the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason they don't look like they're new creations in Christ is because they're not new creations in Christ. They've believed, they've been inoculated, but they haven't been transformed from the inside out. And that's, again, something only God can do. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just telling you the reality. Well, uncle whoever, you know, or little whoever, my, my nephew, I mean, I know that they were saved when they were four, and, and I know that, that they're believers. Well, he, he's just, you know, burned down, stolen everybody's money, burned down the entire village, raped, pillaged, and plundered, and murdered everybody, but I'm thankful he's a believer. How many times have I heard that in my life? A hundred. No, 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 guess what? People don't do that anymore who are redeemed. Paul, when he met the risen Christ, his, land, his life was transformed. He used to be called Saul of Tarsus, and now he's Paul. He used to murder Christians. He doesn't do that anymore. He used to persecute believers. He doesn't do that anymore. He's transformed and changed because he met the risen Christ. The American church is in such a mess because there are far too many people who really aren't who they claim to be. And I'm not making accusations against anybody. I'm just saying you better evaluate your life based on what the Scripture says and make sure you are exactly who you think you are. And if you're going to go proclaim a message that Jesus saves people from their sins, then you ought to look like somebody who's been saved from their sins. I didn't say perfect, but there ought to be some difference with Christ in you than when you are apart from Christ, and that ought to be evidence to everybody around you. Believing is not enough. It's being transformed from the inside out. And everything in your life needs to be done with a goal to honor and glorify the person of Jesus Christ. Every moment of your day, the best of your ability, from the moment you get up in the morning, you say, Lord, help me to honor you today. As the Father sent me, I also send you. Father sends the Son for no other reason except for the salvation of the lost to provide the sacrifice that was necessary through his death, burial, and resurrection and triumph over sin to provide propitiation. His death carries our sin away. His resurrection proves the Father accepted his sacrifice in full. We are justified. Nothing else needs to be done. There's no other reason for why the Father sent Christ into the world. And again, I remind us that the Father sent Christ into the world out of his great love for the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have, uh, not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father, as the Father sent me, the Father sent me, the person of Jesus Christ, out of love for this rebellious planet, Jesus Christ says, I also send you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. So again, we have to remember that the people in the world, men and women in the world, the, the fallen and as wicked as they are, again, I said it last week, they're not our enemy, they're the mission field. They're not our enemy, they're the mission field. 
It's true we live in a crooked and perverse generation. It's true that there are many people who are wicked around us who don't know Christ. It's true that there are many people around us who are facing eternal destruction and God's eternal wrath. They're perishing. Just like Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So again, we have to realize that our battle here in this world is not against them. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes in the heavenlies. And many men and women are trapped behind enemy lines, if you will. They're dupes of the devil. They believe the lies of the devil and not believe the truth of the word of God. So Christ sends us to represent him. Christ sends us to represent him and his love for the nations, his love for men. To declare again the good news that God is willing to forgive sin so that you might not perish and have eternal life. That's the message we're to deliver, and that message has to be delivered with great grace, great compassion, great mercy by us. Anger and wrath towards sin belong to God. We're ambassadors of the gospel. We bring the message of good news, the good news of God's grace, the good news of God's mercy, the good news of God's love. God will deal with the wicked. God will deal with the, the unrighteous and judge them in their sin. But t- today, the day we live is not the day of wrath. It's the day of grace. And we as his ambassadors have to represent him well in this fallen world that desperately needs to know Christ and the love that the Father offers to men freely. I mean, the gospel in it and of itself is offensive enough. The men have to humble themselves and admit the fact that they're sinners in need of a Savior. So we have to be very careful to make sure that we're not interjecting ourselves and our own personal hatred for sin into the conversation. And we need to be careful to not be personally offensive in our delivery of the gospel and somehow get ourselves in the way of the message that saves. We're messengers of mercy. I personally see nowhere in the New Testament where Christ offered to sinners anything else but grace. He warned them, that's true, but he loved them. And the Bible says that sinners were attracted to Jesus. Luke 15, 1, all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The question obviously has to be, are sinners attracted to us? The only people that I see whom Jesus regularly rebuked was the religious leaders of Israel who were leading people away from him and leading people away from the truth. Sons of hell making other people just like them. But the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Again, verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them, Peace be with you as the Father sent me, I also send you. Again, this is a preview of the Great Commission that's coming later. The message again is simple. The hard attitude is one of love. There's a desire to see men saved, uh, uh, that Christ is honored through men and women who would repent and place their, their faith in him. But the message that Christ sent was sent into the world to bring, and the message that Christ sent with his followers to take into the world comes at a high cost. He was rejected, he was mistreated, he was abused. Therefore, we should not expect to be treated any differently. 
John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, slaves not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. At the same time, there were some who did receive the message, some who repented, some who placed their faith in the person of Christ. And they passed that knowledge of the truth and God's mercy to men uh, onto other men who in turn passed it on to other men, who in turn passed it on to us who are sitting in the room. And it's our responsibility as debtors to grace to likewise pass on that message still further. That means we can't stand aloof from the world. We can't stand aloof from people in the world. We can't be unconcerned about their eternal destiny, their salvation, because we are salt and light in the world. A world that is desperately in need of hope and help. A world that is perishing and desperately in need of the reduction of the corruption that salt brings. A world that is desperately in need of the light of the hope of the gospel of truth that will shine into men's darkness. When Christ came, he came as a friend of sinners. And he identified with the world in which he came to save without entering into sin. Likewise, we need to be involved with the world around us, involved in its life, with people around us, without participating in sin. Loving the lost, just like Christ has loved us. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only true source of hope, help, peace, joy. Offering to a dying world life in Christ's name. And we need to think carefully and wisely on how we do this. Just last week, I read a couple different stories that address this issue. The first one I read was about a church, a church whose members cut themselves off from all contact with lost people intentionally. The parents in this church pulled their children out of Sunday school and youth activities because, quote-unquote, worldly kids were attending those activities. And the families of the church were afraid that their kids might pick up bad language and then be enticed to join in the sinful behavior of worldly kids. So imagine, if you can, a quote-unquote church where sinners are not welcome. Another story I read was about a man named Gib Martin. He was a pastor who was led to Christ at age 27 by a man named Charlie. Charlie was an alcoholic for many years before he met Christ. And after he got saved, Charlie had a burden for men who were just like he'd been. So every day after work, Charlie would stop at the bar where he used to hang out, where, where Gib also went every day after work. And Charlie would drink coffee and share his life with those who would listen. And eventually that's how Gib came to faith in Christ. But the sad part of the story is that none of the local churches would allow Charlie to associate with him because he went to a bar every day even though he wasn't getting drunk, even though he wasn't even drinking beer. They didn't like what he was doing. Even the church where Charlie directed Gibb to go after his conversion wouldn't allow Charlie to join. Yet amazing, the text says Jesus was a friend of sinners. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if we're not involved with sinners to befriend them, how in the world can we tell them about Jesus Christ, who's the Savior of all men? If Jesus Christ's purpose was to seek and save the lost, should that not also be our purpose, who call ourselves his followers? 
Jesus entered into the world of sinners around him without entering into sin. Verse 22, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that? Well, I'll begin by telling you what that is not. It's not the day of Pentecost. We're still here on Resurrection Day. Pentecost comes in 49 days later, Acts chapter 2. So what is this? When he says, uh, breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, it, it has to be just a purely symbolic, prophetic act. Uh, again, look at the Old Testament. Lots of vivid object lessons in, in the Old Testament to uh, prophets used to, uh, or God used with prophets to illustrate a message. It has to be something along those lines. So th this is not Christ imparting through his breath the actual, literal Holy Spirit in the fullness to them. It's a symbolic prophetic gesture. It's what's about to happen. It's what's coming in the soon near future on the day of Pentecost. Think again, when, when Christ began his public ministry, the Father sent the Holy Spirit who came upon Christ at his baptism. And as Christ is sending his apostles, who later will uh, grow to be his church into the world, right? That's a formidable task. Again, these, these first ambassadors of the gospel need to have this power. They need to be, because uh, uh, they're commissioned, they need to have this a person of the Holy Spirit, this divine power to take the task to the world that they're going to be asked to take. So again, this is not Pentecost. This is a picture. It's a prophetic picture. And repeatedly through Christ's ministry, uh, before his crucifixion, John 14, 15, 16, Christ kept saying, look to the disciples, I, it's better for you that I go because if I go, then I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. It's better that I leave because you'll have the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling. You don't have to hold on to me physically because when I go, I'll still be with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit and he'll lead you into all truth and he'll teach you all things concerning me. He'll bring back to your memory. So Acts chapter 1, which is still, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is still before Pentecost, Christ says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Still future. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So Christ is commissioning these men to represent him, but he's also going to empower them. Jesus therefore said to them, again, peace be with you as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. So it's a prophetic picture of what's going to soon occur. Again, we can't possibly carry out the mandate to proclaim the gospel to the lost without relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah reminds us that even in the Old Testament, right? Not by might, not by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. Man is dead and trespasses in sin. There's, there's no way that a man can come to faith in Christ, to come alive uh, apart from the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. And Christ sends forth the Holy Spirit uh, to the church, to empower the church, to carry out the ministry, the proclamation of the gospel, uh, with the aim of seeing men and women repent, save, come in, to Christ, and then disciple to Christ. No one turns to Christ without God's supernatural working through the Holy Spirit. Sin's reign in our life is too great. It's too overwhelming. Now again, the, the commentators like to debate about the exact meaning of this thing, and they go back and forth. Again, Pentecost is not for some 49 days future. And two positions I basically led out that most of them come to, and I basically led out, uh, or given you the first one already, but I kind of see it as an and both. These are the two top that commentators like to delve in when they go to this verse. Uh, again, the first category is just 
how do you understand it? It's just a symbolic act. In anticipation, again, of the imminent pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it's given with close proximity to take the gospel to lost sinners. So again, I think it's just stressing that relationship by way of illustration. The need for the Holy Spirit's power to take the gospel forward. And some men fall into this camp, and again, I think it's kind of an and both. The need for life. The need for power, the need for life, right? Again, back in the Old Testament, what happened when, at the beginning when God created Adam and Eve? He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Man needs supernatural life, Genesis 2 7. Think about Ezekiel 37, 9 through 14. It's the valley of the dry bones. God tells the prophet to prophesy that the breath of the Holy Spirit would come and bring life. And that's what men need, who are separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins. When the Holy Spirit comes, when he's poured out in full in the new covenant, that great promise from the Old Testament, the great new covenant passage in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove, um, uh, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. So God is going to cleanse us from sin. He's going to give us new life, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God in us, God's spirit in us. The source of our power to take the message is going to be God's life, his life in us. So again, up to this point, because we haven't gone to Pentecost yet, up to this point, the Holy Spirit never came and permanently indwelt people as he will do onward from the day of Pentecost. And again, this breath that Christ breathes out, I think is just a rich spiritual lesson. It's a picture of what is coming when the Holy Spirit descends upon them uh, on the day of Pentecost. And then when the Holy Spirit was poured out in, in full, uh, the uh, uh, change in these men was immediate, uh, public, uh, demonstrable, uh, the change, the outpouring of the miraculous power of God in them. And again, the Holy Spirit, now we this side of the day of Pentecost, the, the Bible says in the New Covenant era, the Holy Spirit permanently dwells the believer, empowers the believer, and gifts the believer for service back to God. So again, I think the actions here are prophetic, indicating the coming of the Holy Spirit that's about to happen, which really is going to complete the transaction between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. So again, you've got 10 of the 12 original apostles hanging out in this room. They're locked in fear, hiding. The Lord comes and says, verse 19, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced. When they saw the Lord, verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. Uh, the Father has sent me as I send you. So the first thing the Lord wants these men to know post-resurrection, again, is the fact that he's alive from the dead, that he wants them to be convinced of that. First thing he wants them to know is they're going to have a commission. They're going to go and represent Christ in the world. They're going to go and proclaim the gospel. The second thing he wants them to know is that they're not going to do it in their own power. Verse 22, when he said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a third thing he wants them to know. He wants them to know they're going to have a delegated authority. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Or the ESV says, if you withhold the forgiveness uh, forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what in the world does this mean? Well, I'll start again with a negative. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, as the Roman Catholic Church 
falsely teaches that ordained priests have the authority in themselves to forgive or retain the sins of people contingent on private confessions and penance. They attempt to base that errant doctrine on supposed apostolic secession from Peter to the popes and some kind of distinction between clergy and laity, but that's biblically incorrect. The Scripture teaches that God alone can forgive sin. Mark 2, 7. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Daniel 9 and 9. The Lord, to the Lord God belongs compassion and forgiveness. We on our authority don't go around and forgive anybody of their sins. Roman Catholic priests think they can, but they can't. Nowhere in the New Testament is there any record of instances of apostles or anybody else absolving people from their sins. Further, the promise in the context is not made to the apostles alone because according to Luke 24, there are other people in the room with them when Jesus showed up. So here it is in a, in a nutshell, what Jesus is actually teaching. Any Christian can confidently declare those who genuinely repented and believed upon Christ that they're going to have their sins forgiven. Any Christian can confidently declare those who genuinely repented and believed upon the person of Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven by God. On the other hand, he can also say, the Christian can also say, that those who reject Jesus Christ are going to die in their sin apart from Christ. So again, 20 verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, again, through their repentance and confession of faith in Christ, based on the authority of the Word of God, because that's where the authority comes from, based on the Word of God, then you can confidently tell them they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, again, if men and women do not repent and place their faith in Christ, again, based upon the Word of God, where the authority is driven from, then you can confidently tell them their sins have not been forgiven. They have been withheld. So again, we don't have authority. Well, Catholic priest doesn't have authority. Authority comes from the Word of God. Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people, solemnly to testify that this one whom has been appointed by God as judge in the living of the dead, that would be Jesus Christ, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. That's our message. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Again, it's all what people do with the person of, of Jesus Christ. One time I heard uh, John MacArthur, he was asked by some students at the Masters University, how do you evangelize someone? I thought, his, I thought his answer was great. It cuts to the chase, and that's what I like. Cuts right to the point. He says, look, if somebody comes up to me and asks, what do you do for a living? He says, don't waste the opportunity. Tell them this. Tell them I have the greatest job on the planet. I tell people that their sins can be forgiven if they repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you interested? Cuts right to the point, right? I'm glad you're a fireman, a police officer, a brain surgeon. But what do you really do for a living? That's how you take care of your family. What do you do, really do for a living? You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I tell people their sins can be forgiven if they repent and trust Christ. Are you interested? Because, again, the gospel is not about, not about you and me having a better life or a happy life. It's not about Christ filling up our loneliness, our empty spots. It's about forgiveness of sin. I have great good news. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. Are you interested? 
Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for our time in this passage of Scripture that again points us to the great help and the great hope we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have indeed uh, commissioned us as your ambassadors. Uh, We're to take the word of the reconciliation uh, to the world that you don't count trespasses and sin for those who repent and place their faith in Christ. We have a great privilege, a great purpose, a great power, and you are great God who's put us into a new position as your sons and daughters. Therefore, we praise you. Thank you for your kindness in our own life. Thank you for the great privilege we have of the indwelling presence of the person of Christ and, again, that power and that boldness. Help us to represent you well in a fallen world that desperately needs hope and help that they'll not find anywhere except in the Savior, in whose name I pray. Amen.